Hello and welcome back to another episode of the NedPro podcast. My name is James Bradfield and I'm one of the deputy co-leads of our Global Innovation Panel. Today's episode is one that I've wanted to do for a number of weeks now due to all that's happening with the ongoing coronavirus crisis. We've all likely seen and read news headlines and reports detailing what's happening, but I wanted to hear it from somebody who's experiencing it day to day in their real life. So I sat down and had a conversation with Dr. Tim Eden. Now, Tim is a member of the NEDPRO Global Innovation Panel as well. He's currently working as a junior doctor and as a dietitian on an intensive care ward in London. It's a really interesting discussion where we discuss a number of topics such as Tim's current working conditions, his experiences to date, and the nutritional management of a patient with COVID-19. So I hope that you do enjoy, and I hope you learn something along the way as well. Hi, Tim. So first things first, thank you so much for giving up a bit of your time and agreeing to have a chat with me this evening. I really appreciate it. So for those of you who don't know, Dr. Tim Eden is a junior doctor and registered dietitian currently working in critical care in London. Obviously, like many others, Tim is currently involved in the ongoing fight against COVID-19 and the spread of coronavirus. Now, Tim is a valued member of the NEDPRO Global Centre's Global Innovation Panel, and he's actually been involved in NEDPRO for a number of years and held a number of different positions over that period. His dual qualification obviously makes him the perfect fusion of many of the best parts of NEDPRO, although he does also describe himself as Cordon Bleu trained in a former life on his Twitter uh, biography. For anybody who does know Tim and does follow him on social media, seeing the things that he makes and posts, I don't think any of us would argue that final point. So Tim, like I said, thank you so much for giving me a bit of your time this evening. Before we get started, how are you? Just before we get into the the nitty gritty, how are you? You must be incredibly busy at the moment. Um, Yeah, no, it's good. Um, It's been a busy, um, I've just basically finished four long days on um, intensive care. Um, And I think at the moment we're really starting to see, you know, things in London kind of, um, yeah, get a lot busier. but no, I, I'm okay. Spirits are still um, good in the in the team. So yeah, no, I'm, I'm good at the moment. That's good. And just again, to make it clear, if I wasn't clear enough, Tim is literally, while well, hopefully you approach all things with both your medical and your dietetic viewpoints and kind of fuse those two things together, you are literally working both jobs kind of on and off. So I think it's fair to say you're you're probably contributing a lot more than most of us. So, so I think I probably, yeah, I guess probably to add into that. So, um, so I did my four, my four sort of long days, um, working as a junior doctor, um, on intensive care. And then actually, uh, my old department that I used to work with, um, as a dietitian, they've been quite short staffed, um, you know, given all the, I guess, increased, um, you know, level of care we're having to provide. So, um, I've actually gone back just to do some ad hoc days to help that team out. Um, so I'm actually quite sort of um in a fortunate position but equally uh, you know um an interesting position in the sense i've gone back as a dietitian in the intensive care as well so that's what i was doing today actually so um yeah it's been interesting to see it literally at both ends um from yeah, a sort of dietet- dietetic hat but also yeah um, a medical hat as well yeah that's absolutely fantastic so i suppose tim one of the things that we've become quite used to seeing on the news for example and being reported in the in the media of one sort or another and everything really at the moment is the conditions that people are working in and I suppose could you kind of give us an idea of what your working conditions are at the moment I mean obviously you're on an intensive care ward or unit um, is it a, a regular intensive care an existing intens- intensive care ward or is it one of these almost sort of pop-up wards 
and really I suppose how are you finding things like again fitting in those extra shifts the fact that you're balancing two jobs PPE personal protective equipment and just a general idea of of your work environment and your conditions so I guess um I guess the the reality is um I mean I was on a four-month placement in intensive care so I'm a junior doctor based in London um so based in West London and as like most junior doctors we do rotations every four months um what has happened with the the pandemic and with the increased amount of requirements across every specialty primarily sort of A&E and intensive care um and I guess the changes in the the main acute wards as well um all of the rotations have kind of been frozen so whichever um people have been kind of redeployed um or sort of moved into different different sort of locations depending on where need is the greatest so I guess um the position I was in um being already on intensive care what they actually said was any junior doctor currently in intensive care would remain on that probably now until the end of the summer okay so um so yeah so I'm on a general intensive care but at the moment we are forever increasing our, and expanding into different wards um yeah. utilizing different areas of the hospital to make space for you know more patients more ventilators more beds um so that's the that's the current sort of state of play in terms of the environment um one thing that's been really interesting and one thing i've found quite useful for people who aren't kind of intensive care specialists or people that have worked um or never been to an intensive care which is probably like most people probably have most, a, yeah yeah you have sort of a preconception as to what it looks like or what it what it is but um there was some incredibly good health journalism done by the bbc a couple of days ago okay um they show a really good video clip of you know it's a 5 minute clip where they go around um a sort of intensive care at the moment caring for um covid patients so like our intensive care at the moment it is pretty much predominantly um covid positive patients we still have an area for obviously non covid positive patients so we're sort of co- cohorting the sort of two two populations but um it gives a really good insight a video it's a 5 minutes um it's really valuable to see it's very you know it's very well produced there's no shock tactics it's very much um you know a good sort of video clip to see actually what is a day to day life for the nursing staff and doctors um working on intensive care so i'd highly recommend that to anyone um you know if you get a chance to look at it um it's quite it's quite insightful definitely yeah and it it's something that i can maybe put in the the description to the show add a link and if people want to see that there they they can go and have a look as well i i know it's something i found myself even in my own training as a dietitian that you know the first time i was on a an icu rotation and i expected to go up and for it to be sort of like one of those emergency scenes almost in grey's anatomy or something like this you know people running around shouting and actually it's probably the one area in the hospital where nothing's further from the truth and it's actually very calm and of course the people there are very ill and require lots of care lots of attention but because of that it's actually almost a relaxed environment in in a kind of a strange way and there tends to be a little bit more space physically than there would be on a normal ward and you know again i've to qualify that and say that i haven't worked on any ward where there's been you know a covid-19 specific ward or anything like that so i can't speak for that specifically but in my own experience i found the icu almost quite a pleasant place to work in many ways because you do have that extra bit of space and the little bit of time as well maybe and 
because you have more nursing staff, for example, but also more access to doctors up there than you might do as an AHP um, off a regular ward. And you also have the opportunity then to bounce ideas off of them. And it just leads to greater MDT working in general, which I, I have found very useful and, and I, I'm sure is beneficial for everyone, including patients, of course, as well. And I think I think you've probably hit the nail on the head, actually, where it's kind of actually intensive care for normal sort of traditional circumstances are, you know, it is a very calm environment. You are mm -hmm. practicing medicine in a very controlled way. Um, and actually, I think intensive care medicine has always been at the forefront of kind of MDT working, sort of appreciating roles of, you know, whether it's dietetic input from a sort of nutritional point of view, but equally, you know, physiotherapists, speech and language therapists, yeah. they have such a crucial role. Um, you mentioned about the sort of um, the staffing levels, and I think you mentioned it in an earlier question, but um, that's that's probably the biggest thing that's changed. And that's the the thing that's making it probably the most difficult at the moment is um, the, the probably actually the nursing staff level. Um, in intensive care, really, the, the nursing staff, anyone that's worked on intensive care will know that the nursing staff are absolutely I mean, they're, they're absolutely brilliant. They have so much um, knowledge. Their, their expertise in, in this field is, um, you know, by, by far better sometimes than when you go on as a allied health profession or a junior doctor. We all, we all have a role to play, but the, the nursing staff are incredibly um, talented. And it's all such practical skills. I mean, because they're doing so much of the, the work in a quite a hands-on way. Like, for example, as a dietitian coming down, you assess the patient and you leave a feeding plan. But often they're the nurses are the ones doing the feeding they're often the ones mm. placing the feeding tubes and again i imagine for many other ahps and for junior doctors like yourself there are probably many nurses doing a lot of the things that we might be asking for or requesting for patients so, so absolutely the practical side of what they do is absolutely immense but definitely and i, I felt like um, you know i've throughout my whole placement whilst i've been on itu you know working there i've learned so much from them but at the same time even more so in the last couple of weeks where, to be honest with you, we're used to kind of almost having ratios of one-to-one -one nursing. So one nurse <laughs> to one patient. Um, we're now looking at very different ratios because there's just no way we can treat the amount of patients we have um, requiring ventilators, um, being fully sedated and you know needing nursing care. So if I'm being honest at the moment, the biggest um, sort of factor I think that's um, been difficult is actually the, the nursing level um staffing level that we have we're now sort of looking at the moment of kind of one nurse to every four five patients and um mm. as you can imagine that becomes a bit of a game changer in terms of you know practicalities of what we're able to do and that previously very calm atmosphere that was once there you know has moments of being not so calm yeah i can imagine absolutely yeah but, but on the, the positive side it's it's really pulled the team together in terms of you know i find myself as a junior doctor you know i'm doing things that i i never thought i would be doing i mean i'm i'm doing hca work i'm doing um i'm doing nursing work that to be honest with you you realize as a doctor it's all well and good that i sit there prescribing a lot of medications but if someone tells me you know how do i draw up some tazacin or tycoplanin which are a couple of different antibiotics i've got no idea <laughs> yeah exactly it's sort of humbling i suppose to see the various different roles and that was my own sort of experience too and, and what I was getting at really like you know being on ICU in a normal context without a COVID pandemic it really gives you a good appreciation for what everybody else does and it gives you a chance in many cases and in many ways to take time to see and I suppose something 
to be aware of with nursing levels in particular again I'm, I'm sure it's the same with doctors but it means we're limited in one sense in what we can expect from nurses if they're dealing with you know effectively four times as many patients as they usually do and I suppose it also means that we have to be really conscious of minding our nurses and other frontline staff if, if that's not a very patronizing things to, to, to say you know the, the last thing that we should do is work to the bone because you know if they're already working on a greater number than they're used to for example and there's already a strain then the last thing we want to do obviously is add to that further to the to the point where they become unnecessarily unwell either through covid or any sort of infection or anything like that as well yeah and i, th- I think it sort of goes back to actually um we're now sort of in a position where we're just managing probably our own expectations a bit more where actually to be fair what was realistic you know a month ago in terms of monitoring in terms of you know what we'd hope to achieve with some patients um, in terms of the interventions and how frequently we might do something well actually you know now we're just having to be a bit more realistic and say actually let's let's draw this back to the essentials and say what, what is really the life-saving stuff we're doing and you know actually the nursing staff they're they're great and they do so much more than just the core bones but I think actually we're in a position where now we are having to reprioritize things a bit more and and that's that's the good thing about you know using clinical judgment you're you're sat there and you're thinking well actually what are the the essential things and then what are the the added things that are useful but maybe won't necessarily change the clinical course of that mm-hmm. patient and I, th- I think that's where we're sort of at at the moment yeah absolutely tim and bringing it right back to those core considerations and, and really that leads me on to to my next question you've already mentioned a couple of things like managing expectations is probably one for example but what kind of things have you learned since you started working in within the the covid sphere so i don't necessarily mean for example the structure of the virus or any of the sort of technicalities like those kind of things but the more practical either from a medical or a dietetic point of view or of course just from somebody you know working on the icu ward i mean what have been your main takeaways so far that you've learned I think um I think in terms of the the sort of COVID as a whole is um I mean it's very much it really doesn't differentiate between different people. There's no there's no kind of particular person that it's affecting more than others. Yes, we know that people that are older and more comorbid, like they have more comorbidities, uh, we know it's affecting them more than potentially others. But equally at the same time, I think what we've been surprised to see is actually how slightly younger patients so patients in their 30s 40s 50s um you know these are patients that normally we we would try and avoid from a respiratory point of view of having to get to itu but actually we're finding now you know these patients they are becoming unwell very quickly and um we're sort of i think in the last probably in the last month or so whilst covid has been sort of at its surge in London specifically, we're forever having um, conference calls with updates as to, you know, what we're recognising earlier, the different blood tests we're doing as kind of potentially prognostic markers. And um, I guess really how quickly we're looking to put patients on ventilators to optimise their breathing. And um, I think all of that as a whole, it's just been evolving so quickly. And I think um, it's reassuring to see in some respects actually that how quickly um, a group of experts when they're coming together on a regular basis they can be changing guidelines and they can be evolving the care so um, from a nutrition point of view I think there's also been lots of changes so I think um, for any sort of 
person that's probably listening to this that you know hopefully has a keen interest in nutrition has probably seen the sort of webinars or um, mm-hmm. you know other threads that have been going around on social media like Twitter, Instagram, where they, we've tried to sort of convey best practice. Or, but I think the the key take home messages we we don't have any true evidence about sort of COVID nineteen. This is like a pandemic that's evolving in front of us. So. Um, we're having to use experience from other cases, um, you know, things like um, ARDS, so acute respiratory distress syndrome, we're sort of taking information from that, adapting it and seeing how it works out with potentially these kind of COVID patients. And I think um, I think we, we're going to keep seeing the evidence and the practice evolving with that. So, so it's an interesting time, but equally, um, you know, time that's fascinating in the sense in one respect of seeing experts coming together and you know changing i guess or manipulating guidelines um in quite a rapid fashion definitely yeah and i hope this doesn't come across as a cold thing to say but it must be very interesting and almost a kind of exciting time to be involved in in this care because of course you have to bear in mind you know it's been said time and again on the news for example when there are new deaths and the new death tolls and new cases and everything that these are real people and not just statistics but from the point of view of managing a new condition it must be extremely interesting to him to see how things develop sort of in in real time you know you you mentioned for example not having specific guidelines for covid because obviously it's brand new and as much as you can extrapolate from similar conditions whether it's um SARS or MERS or whatever else there are different characteristics and you just can't know um, which which then does come down to your expert opinion and your clinical judgment, expert guidelines and all these kind of things. So you mentioned webinars too, and it's it's really positive, I think, to see how many different groups and companies and organizations have been running primarily free online modules and webinars and you know discussion forums to share ideas. I know that there's been times where an open forum can be dangerous as well as it makes it difficult to moderate and stop the spread of misinformation. But by and large, the reaction of people to the information has been really positive and you know even today the the british dietetic association the bda um, critical care group I, I don't know if you got to see it yet but they've released a best practice guidance on enteral feeding for patients in the prone position i did see that yeah i did on my on my journey home i was uh, double checking what, what advice i've been giving how does it compare to um the latest guidelines and yes it's fortunately kind of roughly the same which is a uh, yeah. reassuring for me yeah, would hundred percent you know reassuring for you and anyone who recognizes your voice and thinks, God, that's my doctor or whatever it might be that that to know that you've been doing the right thing and it it just is very interesting to see the various considerations and I think in many many ways it must be why so many people become interested in critical care medicine and dietetics to begin with you know nutrition obviously just being one aspect of that care um I suppose Tim going on from there then can you can you talk a little bit maybe about determining nutritional requirements in an ICU patient maybe first for anyone unfamiliar with the things that you might look for typically and then how or if that differs for um, a patient with COVID-19. So I think yeah I think that's a really good question I mean I think um, I think probably the most practical approach is to really treat this as if you know it's your it's any kind of like you would any ICU patient so typically we'd either use equations or we'd use things from kind of ESPEN guidelines, which would tell us, you know, X amount of calories per, per kilo. And we, we start to look at kind of, you know, the initial BMI of the patient. So if it's over 25 or if it's someone within a sort of healthy BMI range. So you've kind of got 
you've got those two different ways to look at it. So using things like Penn State as an equation or, again, the sort of ESPN guidelines. Um, that's more for, that's specifically for the energy requirements. So when you're calculating the, the calories. Um, I think the key thing I'd say with regards to kind of both of them, again, we don't have evidence for COVID mm -hmm. specifically. So again, both of these kind of guidelines and equations, neither one of those have been kind of validated in, in the use of COVID, for example. So I think, again, it's going back to kind of best practice. Um, it goes back to using your clinical judgment. Um, the other thing I guess to look out for is, um, you know, with these patients, when we're looking at nutrition requirements, when, um, you know, when we're looking at that, we're, we're factoring in many things when we're assessing the patient. So how febrile these patients are, you know, yeah. um, you know, for example, we know first thing is with these patients, um, the typical kind of COVID one, one thing, just, just as a quick aside, the one thing that's become quite interesting in um, the ITU setting or when speaking to radiologists or mm -hmm. other healthcare workers, we're starting to coin the term classic COVID um, as a kind of, this is a very COVID presentation, which is something okay. I think, you know, you know, the reality is, you know, we've been dealing with it for a month and um, I, I don't know how much I would say anything is a classic presentation. I think you need probably years of experience looking at stuff like that. And Tim, sorry if I can cut across you for a second. What exactly or what it actually is a classic COVID patient or... I think what you're getting at is your sort of typical COVID patient and what you might expect them or predict that they will present as or like. So what does that kind of look like? And comparing that maybe to what you might call a, a non-classic patient or whatever term that you're you're using at the moment. So I guess um so I guess weirdly, although I'm you know being slightly sort of jovial by using the term classic, we I mean we are very much seeing trends um, mm -hmm. with these patients, and I think it's it's good for us to recognise that because we can start to identify, um and we can start to apply different management techniques which we would ordinarily like apply in those situations. So when the patient is very febrile, which we know actually almost for the first four or five days of the clinical course. And um, they do have very high temperatures and um, we know they have very high insensible losses. So when I was saying earlier how we started to change our practice, I know in the first week when I was with my consultant and I was with the senior registrars, we were sort of, you know, making sure that every single patient was being run incredibly dry. We were looking at the fluid balance, making sure that we want to keep them as negative as possible to optimize their respiratory function. Okay. And and then recently, you know, actually the, the more recent kind of clinical data and our experience to date really now has shown us actually there's a fine balance because these patients, they're febrile for the quite a prolonged period and they get these high insensible losses. They dry out. They are very prone to going into some sort of renal failure. Mm -hmm. um, we're identifying things like, you know, increased um, creatinine kinase, so CK levels that are very high, which normally would predispose someone to um, sort of renal dysfunction. And yeah. we, we know sort of one way around that or to, to help avoid that so much is actually not keeping the patient so dry. So making sure they're having a bit more fluid on board. Um, so that's that's definitely one key thing that, that's changed. Um, so you, you've kind of got those things you're looking at um, in terms of nutritional requirements. So actually how how that's going to affect their their calorie and energy utilization. I guess um I guess with regards to as well when calculating energy requirements, um yes we're using sort of simple equations or we're looking at sort of calories per kilo, and I think to be honest with you in terms of capacity levels a lot of these equations are very appropriate because mm -hmm. in terms of how much 
how many patients we're seeing and in terms of how much um, it's going to impact the clinical course. I think we we don't know if we're 100% accurate with these anyway, but it's a good guidance for us. So I think actually they're, they're a very good starting point. And then as we know, with kind of dietetic practice, everything is about kind of, you know, ongoing monitoring with your patient and kind of seeing where, where things go yeah. and change your management plan sort of, you know, as the, the clinical course changes. Um, another thing just to be aware of, just, just in terms of energy levels is actually one key thing we've noticed, and I think it surprised quite a lot of people in ITU, is actually the amount of sedation we're we're having to use with a lot of patients to keep them sufficiently sedated for, you know, optimizing their ventilators is mm-hmm. it's it's been a lot bigger. Uh, the amounts of things like propofol, fentanyl, and and anyone working in ITU would know that we we start to take propofol amounts quite seriously because we know yeah. it contributes to to the amount of energy um, that they're receiving. So so do you keep an eye on you know, if you are in ITU and you're assessing a patient, look how much propofol the patient's on, because that will, that will sort of, you know, um, you know, influence how much, you know, you're going to provide via your enteral feed or whether it's, you know, TPN in some cases. Um, so that's another thing to look out for. So, yeah, absolutely. Lots to look out for and to be trained in monitoring. And it is really encouraging you know to, to to know that the attitude is very much use our best clinical judgment and use our best practice that we have as of now and then monitor and review because as you said yourself that's kind of energy requirements 101 really we all like equations you mentioned spen you know 25 to 30 kilocalories per kilo or those sorts of ranges but really there's they're only a starting point regardless of what you use and you have to obviously monitor to see if that's helping or not helping your patient and then adjusting that to their own requirements just picking up on one thing that you did that, that you said about sedation tim and you've mentioned that pro propofol for example contributes to their energy intake in so much as it does contain calories have you had any issues then with meeting protein requirements uh, as a result because reduced energy requirements um as a result of the that that coming from the propofol leading to a reduced overall feed volume and therefore possibly not meeting protein intakes or requirements and actually maybe before answering that so that is a part two why are you finding that um, they're having these patients need higher levels or rates of sedation than your usual kind of patients that you might see like is it because for example patients are younger than you might usually see on the ICU and therefore simply require more sedation or is it something to do with COVID specifically and a requirement for increased sedation levels yeah I mean it's um yeah that's yeah that's a good good summary of the question really I mean I guess in terms of the amount of sedation, I mean, um, I think it is partly because the the patients are younger than probably what our typical ITU sort of, um, you know, cohort would be where they might be in their 50s or 60s plus maybe. Um, whereas now we're seeing patients, you know, 30s, 40s who are, you know, their pre-morbid state. Actually, they may not have very many comorbidities. So we're, we're finding, you know, actually they're younger they are obviously, like I mentioned before, they're, they're febrile. For, also, they have a high temperature for quite a prolonged period, especially in the sort of initial clinical course of their sort of COVID um, journey or their, their clinical course of the virus. So we know that both of those factors, having high temperatures, having which sort of increases sort of metabolic turnover and usage of, of medication and drug clearance, we know that that, along with the fact that they're younger and actually 
you know, it's going to take a lot more to sedate a much younger, um, sort of healthier person that doesn't have, you know, kidney, uh, an element of sort of kidney or renal impairment. Yeah. And they're, they're just going to clear the medication a lot quicker. So the amount of kind of fentanyl and propofol we're using, it, it is a lot more. So I think, um, I think it's mainly those two things. Um, so, sorry, yeah, to cut across you again. So in many ways, it is your population as such that's causing the increased requirement for the sedation, like the type of patient that you're seeing coming in with COVID is, is the main requirement. Yeah, I think so. I think they probably, they're, they're the probably two sort of key points. I mean, they're, they're definitely the two things. I'm sure I'm sure there's probably more um, factors involved as well, but they're, they're the two sort of key things we've been discussing um, sort of on our, our ITU um, unit. I guess going, I guess moving to your second question about, you know, how, how easy is it to kind of get the protein requirement in? Well, I think, I think um, a lot of ITU dietitians are quite used to, you know, the higher protein requirements will often be there for for ITU patients. Um, What most protocol feeds have, and I think just as a bit of an aside, I guess protocol feeding is actually always been around on most intensive cares and actually you know it's often it's often dietetic led it's you know it's had the stamp of approval slash you know actually it's normally been developed by the dietitians key to that kind of department they're being used increasingly um in the itu setting at the moment just purely down to um the fact that you know the dietetic service may not be available when um you know when the new patients are coming in and when they have tubes placed and the protocols we have in place have been absolutely brilliant and again referencing back to the bda they've got some very good protocols um in the the critical care group um, as to what would be your kind of starter regime um in terms of the actual protein requirement itself i mean a lot of the feeds we tend to use as a starter feed they are the higher protein feeds so depending on whatever I guess whatever um, you know nutrition company you're using, um, it will tend to be the slightly more um, calorific, so slightly more concentrated um, and higher protein feeds, um, just just to help ensure that with a lower concentration of volume, you're still getting you know a slightly higher amount of calorie and protein. Mm-hmm. One thing I guess one thing we've been aware of as well is you know I, I've mentioned a, a handful of times about sort of renal impairment. We are we are finding with a lot of patients, they even if they come in with a sort of um, pre-morbid state of you know not having any renal impairment, we are finding that sometimes they are requiring filtration. So, you know, in sim- in simple terms, the machine that helps to you know aid kidney function, and sometimes it's used to purely get rid of some of the fluid without using certain medications. So we can take the fluid off, um, but equally it helps in terms of you know the the kidney function itself so when someone's urea becomes too high or certain blood um blood components so we mainly look at urea creatinine and potassium levels and then we are finding with some of these patients that their kidney function is going off and they're requiring filtration so from a nutritional point of view i guess it brings two two components that we need to think about is well they're going to probably be losing slightly more protein when they're yeah. on the filter so we need to make sure actually their protein requirements are being met because actually they'll be even higher than um they previously were um secondly the other thing is when you have a patient on filter kind of previously best practice and best practice now is really when someone's on filtration or on dialysis for example we always ensure we supplement with um micronutrients so things like um making sure water soluble vitamins are supplemented so our protocol has actually changed i've i've been really happy actually with um the icu unit i'm working in 
Um, we've now started using some additional supplements that help to supplement protein on top of their sort of baseline feed. We can add in boluses of additional protein supplements. Um, and we can also now sort of use things like um, Paprinex or Renovit, so multivitamin supplements, so that if the patient is on filter, we know that we're kind of supplementing and replacing um, any micronutrients that might be lost um, sort of during that process. So, so that, that's sort of two things I'd say be very aware of you know, not just when looking at calculations of feed or protein requirements, but when you're choosing the type of feed, they're the sort of things you need to factor in. Yeah, of course. And I suppose the setting and, and, and the, the ICU setting and the fact that you're dealing with those who need so much attention and so much care, there just are so many different things that you need to think about. Very interesting, Tim, to hear about all the factors that you've, you're having to take into account. You know, if there was ever a feeling that dietitians just kind of come along and write up a feed and don't have to think too much about it or any sort of standard feeds that we always go to. I think you've dispelled that myth there quite comprehensively. Of course, also really fantastic to hear that you, you know, um, as, as a doctor will be able to continue to push nutrition as being so important and, and influencing those around you as, as much as anything. Which actually kind of leads me on to another one of my points or questions do you find um maybe not difficult maybe difficult is the wrong word but do you ever find yourself when you're there as a doctor thinking about things differently to when you're there as a dietitian so sort of um having different personalities almost or different different roles like do you tend to approach things with your doctor hat on or with your dietitian hat on specifically or would you say that you're able to always or more often than not marry the two together quite well because i'd be interested to hear your your sort of thinking and thought process or or even if it does change at all yeah it's it's interesting a lot of my I guess a lot of my colleagues and friends have actually asked me the same sort of question they they sort of say to me oh you know is it quite difficult to separate you know your dietetic you know when you approach the patient you know your dietetic hat versus your sort of doctor hat and um, mm. I, I must admit I guess the thing is I guess like we know with healthcare, you're, you're always looking at the patient quite globally or we're sort of always told to look at the patient very globally in in terms of, you know, their, their clinical um, well-being, um, their nutrition, their social aspects. So I think actually, to be fair, I, I would say for the most part, there's a good level of sort of, um, I think you use the word synergy, but like, you know, I think I, I don't particularly differentiate the two I guess obviously very much when I like for today for example it's actually quite a good example um, when I was in the ITU assessing all the patients purely from a sort of nutritional point of view you know I, I have to be very conscious that I'm not getting a bit too distracted sometimes with some of the the medical aspects that mm-hmm. potentially don't don't impact the nutritional um, management of the patient but I think I think at the same time it, it lends itself to mean that sometimes I can interpret things um, in a slightly different way or I you know you get to understand the by a couple of sentences from the medical team you get to just intuitively know what sort of angle they're thinking whereas I think before before being sort of medically qualified I think sometimes I would have had to rely on calling the medical team a lot more and say you know what what what's the thought process here what why are we going down this route um so I think that that's really helpful um one thing, one thing that's interesting is, you know, for example, I went to see, I was seeing a patient today who is currently on TPN. He's had some GI surgery, for example, and I guess almost going in there to speak to the patient and we're, we're weaning him off the TPN at the moment and getting him on um, 
some some sort of starting him on some oral diet and it's been a slow process for him but actually one of the things I immediately wanted to do was examine his abdomen and you know look at his ileostomy the stoma site and I wanted to see how distended he was by palpating it and I sort of realized actually with my dietetic heart I would never normally be quite so hands-on but um yeah. so I think you do see it sort of marry up um quite well so so I don't know if that answers the question really, but I think in <laughs> in in some res in some respects, I get I guess I I try and differentiate when I know that I've I'm there for a specific person, like purpose. Sorry, um, but I think it, it's weird because actually I think it's hard to not think about the two, um, you know, synergistically, like you said, actually. So I definitely understand that. Yeah, and I, I suppose Tim, to be honest, that's kind of the answer. If if I can ever say that and the answer that I wanted I suppose that was kind of it you know if you had said oh god it's a nightmare and I find it very hard to do both I'd kind of be throwing you under the bus to your employer so um but I can't I can't imagine of course it must be beneficial and in my own experience there are times where I read something in the medical notes for example and there's obviously logic to why something's being done but there are times that as a dietitian or I'm sure other AHPs and I'm sure as a doctor as well some of the things that that we do there's times where you say okay I'm sure there's a logical explanation for this um, but I don't necessarily have the, the knowledge to decipher it or to really understand it so the fact that you can do both and that it's almost instinctively and I suppose you know the thing is it's from your training as well and, and that that can only benefit you and your patients around you so it is reassuring that you don't have to think as you walk into the hospital you know okay today I'm a dietitian and can't do any doc doctor work or vice versa um, I mentioned at the beginning as well, Tim, that you're quite the chef and a bit of a foodie. Um, anyone who follows you on social media, like I said, would, would back me up. Um, moving away from specifically work life and I suppose the, the ICU setting, have you found that there's been any interruption, for instance, to your eating patterns and things like, for example, the timings of your meals, you know, um, doing longer shifts than you might have been done doing previously or are you finding that when you're at the hospital you know you're trying to eat quickly and get back to work anything like that basically any interruptions to your normal eating and nutrition around the pandemic and the inevitable I suppose sort of increased work rate yeah I think um I think I'd probably speak to speak for everyone that's kind of doing you know any kind of key worker that's kind of working at the moment is um probably the hours have shifted so we are doing longer we're doing longer hours so my typical my tip, typical shift is about kind of 12 and a half 13 hours um so whether that's a day shift or um, a night shift um for example just coming off these day shifts it's quite a good example of i mean it's it does hugely interrupt your typical kind of eating pattern i mean mainly mm -hmm. not so much kind of breakfast and and lunch i mean this is with my dietetic hat doing sort of a diet history to myself but it's kind of <laughs> yeah. you know my 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 morning is very um you know the breakfast is very standardized i have quite a quick breakfast in the morning so whether it's kind of a, a protein shake or whether i have some like a quick scrambled eggs on toast or something but um i might then for example at lunch i think lunchtime we've been so lucky like i think a lot of people have known um with all the kind of social media and the efforts that um a lot of companies and restaurants are doing they're providing a lot of meals to the nhs staff and i think Great, like, yeah. i I, w I wouldn't underestimate any of that for being we're so so grateful for any kind of food contributions that that get delivered to the um to the hospital especially around sort of lunchtime it kind of ends up being a bit of a uh, i guess like a highlight of the day where we, we get to see what what company has what goodies you have for the day 
exactly and um you know and it's amazing how it boosts um sort of staff morale really on you know in what is actually you know considerably harder times than what we what we'd sort of previously been working in um so i think lunch and you know breakfast and lunch are quite standardized and they're okay the issue that i've been having is more when i come home from work kind of you know for example like my long shifts i've been coming home between differing times between half past nine ten o'clock at night and the kind of last thing you want to do really is have a particularly big you've always i think a lot of people would always say you've you've missed that sweet spot where you've been quite hungry you haven't been able to eat and then the hunger kind of passes yeah so i think um i think we can probably all relate to that in some to some extent but i you know i sort of get home and the one thing that i've managed to do and i think i've always maybe this is because of my sort of my sort of cooking background and my dietetic background but I've always been quite an avid fan of if I know I've got a block of long shifts coming up, I do a lot of batch cooking. So I, mm -hmm. I kind of make sure that my, so me and my housemates at the moment, I mean, we're, we're sort of um, Tupperware obsessed. So we have lots <laughs> okay. of, you know, our, our fridge is basically predominantly Tupperware and, you know, vegetables at the moment. And um, you can just see lots of prepared meals that we've kind of tucked away. But, but I think the reality is, you know, not everyone's going to be in that position. And I think, mm -hmm. you know, you end up sort of being in a point where you come back from work and actually the consideration is, do you bother cooking something? You know, sometimes actually you're just so tired, you just want to go to bed and yeah. you, you you don't really eat anything, particularly whether it's nutritious or not, you just don't eat anything. You just kind of go to bed and try and relax for a little bit. And um, so, so I think I've been lucky from some extent that I've, I've tried to practice what I preach and I've tried to, you know, um, you know, do batch cooking and make sure I've always got something in the house that I can quickly kind of just put in the microwave or heat up, for example. But, yeah. but I, I speaking to colleagues and stuff, I know, you know, not everyone's sort of in the same position and, you know, people are just sort of coming in and, you know, pretty much crashing and not, not quite having that usual you know mealtime routine that they would have and and we know it's so important especially as you know dietitians or avid nutrition um people that work in nutrition we know that maintaining that sort of normality is very important and that is something that's definitely slipped um slipped away for a lot of people i suppose to be fair it's, it's a lot easier said than done because as much as and, and you know this as well as a dietitian that as much as I can sit here and say, oh, Tim, it's really important that you, when you come in from a long shift, even if you have done have something fresh and nutritious, have something. But again, like I totally appreciate that it must be very difficult and it probably will resonate with a lot of people what you've just said about the sweet spot, because sometimes you can almost go past the point of hunger and kind of think, Do you know what, I just couldn't be bothered at this stage. And it's something that some of us at NEDPRO are looking at over the last number of weeks actually and we're, we're, we're working alongside NutriTank who um, some people may have heard of they're a, a group of med students pushing for and, and interested in getting more nutrition education in their medical curricula and we're running a survey at the moment for um, key workers key NHS workers and trying to figure out how things have changed for them too because it's probably one of the things that much like in any other situation we may take eating for granted you know we often take it for granted that people are managing to eat okay but like you say, when you come home from a busy shift or a tough day, and I, I'm sure you've had tough days over the course of the crisis as well, it, it may well not be what you want to do, face into, you know, um, and it's good at least that you have some support and some camaraderie around batch cooking and that kind of thing as well. In terms of doing that then, Tim, have you, you know, there's been lots of reports and things about supermarket shelves, for example, being empty or not quite full, people panic buying, that sort of thing. 
and I think it has probably reduced somewhat in the last week or two. Um, but have you found at any point that you in particular, bearing in mind, you know, you're working two types of jobs at the one time, have you found it's actually difficult to get things, get produce, um, whatever about cooking them then afterwards? Have you who've, have you actually been able to buy supplies and, and manage okay from that point of view? So I, so definitely in the in the initial two weeks, so if we go back about sort of three, three four weeks ago, um, you know, when I was going into the supermarket, I think we were probably at our peak of um, panic buying. <laughs> so I think when I say we, I say that, you know, that's the royal we of every public. Yes, um, yeah. Every member of the public seemed to be in their local Sainsbury's, Tesco, Waitrose, wherever. Um, and I think the issue was, you know, every time I was going to the supermarket at that point, I was really struggling just like everyone else to to just buy kind of quite basic ingredients. And um I think it was one one of my first shops where, you know, fortunately I'm sort of, you know, I'm actually very close to a handful of supermarkets in where I'm based in West London. But <laughs> I, you know, I was in there and one thing that really hit me was um, for example, I always make sure that I buy, you know, my typical routine is, you know, I buy a certain amount of meat that I might have for the week and then I buy my vegetables, my fruit, you know, your typical shop. But I noticed in the the meat section, for example, every single normal meat products you know whether it be chicken beef you know uh, mints or whatever everything had been taken and i think i was pretty yeah. much left with the most expensive organic um you know premium ends of like <laughs> lamb pork and you know to, to be honest with you i mean you know i'm very i'm very fortunate and i don't i you know I, jake's aside and stuff i'm very fortunate to, to have my job in this crisis with a lot of people who you know employment and their pay and stuff has obviously suffered during the pandemic but yeah. I, I think at the same time I, I found it incredible that you know that was the only choice I had so I very much actually just went down the route of there was loads of vegetables around and not everyone was really buying fresh vegetables everyone was kind of focusing on store cupboard goods so things like pasta rice and I'm sure we've all seen you know we saw a couple of weeks ago on social media pictures of you know, empty shelves of pasta and empty shelves mm. of like, there were no canned or tinned vegetables and stuff. And I mean, like everyone else, like I sort of sadly, you know, experienced that as well. I think um, fortunately now it's tailed off and people are now being a bit more sensible with what they're they're buying. And with yeah. the, the, the biggest, the, actually the biggest difference to me and one thing I was incredibly grateful was for, was the, um, the introduction of the the different timings for the you know they had a specific slot for NHS workers in my lo local supermarket so Great, the, yeah. fir the first half hour of um, the day was you know it was very useful in the sense that I could go there I knew that I had sort of a guaranteed slot to kind of get get certain foods and get sort of dried products or even you know nutrition aside toilet roll for example yeah. uh, <laughs> you know you know the other essentials in life that uh and um, fortunately, that stuff, you know, having that slot was, you know, really useful. And I think the elderly equally having their sort of, you know, slot in the morning as well has been very useful for everyone. So I think we're sort of getting there. But I think, yeah, there's been a big change in how people have been buying their food products. And um, yeah, it's it's also been difficult. So I think the initial public kind of message from the government was, you know, buy everything online, try and get everything ordered online and stuff. Mm -hmm. And then they sort of realized actually by everyone doing that, all the slots for deliveries were being completely filled up. And actually the reality, we should be prioritize, like prioritizing the more at-risk groups, so the elderly, people that can't go out, 
Um, and then actually we were being encouraged to go to the supermarket. So I think that sort of conflicting or rapid change in guidance or information was quite confusing to a lot of people. So <laughs> I, th I think both things have sort of played their part, the panic element, but also not quite knowing timings or how to navigate when we should be going out to, to buy things. I get you. And I think it's a good point, actually, because we were talking a little while ago about how guidelines and nutrition guidelines, for example, in various medicine and treatments have changed quite quickly based on experts and consensus statements and everything else and how that's really beneficial encouraging proactive because you can see people are reflecting but sometimes when it's those broad public health messages coming from the government for example in most cases when it changes it can be quite confusing for the public because well this week we're being told to do one thing next week we'll be told to do another thing and like you say maybe three or four weeks ago there was definitely a bit of toing and froing, and it was difficult at times to know, you know, what do I do here? What's the right thing to do? Um, how how do I upset or endanger as few people as possible? I, I think we were all conscious of that as well. You know, you talked about people, for example, Tim, um, filling up uh, slots for online shopping, and we all saw reports of elderly people, for example, or those with, for one reason or another, can't get out of the house maybe as easily. Um, or even for people like yourself who are working pretty much around the clock and not having the opportunity to get there and, and go to the supermarket or whatever it might be. And I'm glad, I'm very glad to hear that, you know, some supermarkets around you, for example, are helping out with dedicated opening times. And I have to admit, there was a few times that I went to the supermarket and saw, you know, all the pasta was gone, like you said, and still all of this pasta sauce. I was thinking, God, what are these people actually going to eat their, their pastas? with you know um and again that's that's the essence of the panic buying you mentioned the toilet roll you know tim i know now that i've had you on for a good while and i'm sure you're you're keen to have a kind of a well-earned break and put the feet up but one more question if i may um and however long it takes to answer is very much up to you um what sort of advice would you have for the public you know so i don't necessarily mean people who will be listening to this podcast because i'm sure many are likely to be in either interested in or working in nutrition or healthcare in some way shape or form but the general population so what kind of things would you advise and what kind of things would you request uh, that they do in relation to combating or, or you know helping in the fight against COVID-19? So I guess um, I mean I've really enjoyed this chat so please don't don't apologize to you know, how long. <laughs> yeah I know yeah a few wipe, wiping my brow here like mad. <laughs> <laughs> no not at all not at all um, but I, I will keep this one a bit short because actually I think the the messages are quite simple I think the the messages that have come from government and the the, the people above have been quite simple um, initially like you alluded to they're a bit more confusing at first what do we do what do we not do what are we allowed to do what are we not allowed to do but I think the message at the moment is very clear. We are in a sort of lockdown period and it is a case where, you know, I think from a safety and from a health safety point of view is, you know, really stay at home. I think that's the key thing I can emphasize the most is we know that we are desperately trying to, you know, everyone keeps referring to the, the sort of concept of blunting the curve. So we're talking about the amount of cases um, that are occurring, the amount of people that are needing to go to hospital. The only way we can reduce that is by the spread being at a slightly slower rate so that the healthcare system we have can deal with it. I've seen myself that, you know, we are dealing with it at the moment. It is tricky. It is going to become harder if more and more people are getting infected. And we know that a tried and tested method is people staying at home. We know it's difficult, but bear, I think bear with 
the advice, it is something we need to get through. So stay at home, only leave the house for essential travel, you know, only leave, you know, for essential key workers, for example, when you're going to work, but also even in those situations, make sure you're applying the kind of social distancing. You know, we're, we're always recommending the sort of two meter distancing, for example. Um, we're now sort of heading to that critical point where, you know, we're two and a half weeks into this kind of lockdown. Um, I think I listened to one of your earlier podcasts, uh, James, where, you know, we were very time specific. So this is the 8th of April. Um, so just yeah. to make sure this is two and a half weeks in to, um, you know, sort of the lockdown. And I think, you know, the public, you know, everyone is kind of in a phase where we're unsure, is this really working? Is it not? I think the reality is it is working to help stem, but it's a tried and tested method. So please stay at home. I think um, the panic buying, going back to that concept as well that's just something to remind everyone that there is enough supplies of food groceries essential goods mm -hmm. the, log the logistics component that's that's a sort of a separate and separate question but i think you know continue to buy what you need only that's the best way to make sure that you know everyone is able to to get the supplies they need as well so i think staying at home only leave when you essentially need to um and also in terms of food and commodities just buy what you need don't overbuy. we we're all in this together so i think you know look out for look out for everyone as well so i think that's the that's the sort of key three things i would probably leave it at fab absolutely i think nice clear simple messages is always a good thing for people and as i said to lou previously time stamping a podcast is always good because it gives me a good incentive to to get it done and produced. It means if you're only listening to this in the middle of May, then I haven't really done my job, unfortunately. But I think what you said as well to finish up, Tim, just to keep going and make sure that everybody continues with the social distancing and staying at home, because yes, the numbers are looking more positive than before. And so it arguably becomes more important to continue that trend and not take that for granted and, and say oh well in that case you know we can go out this weekend and especially with the nice weather coming if anything it's a greater incentive to say no let's keep doing what we're doing because unfortunately you know a weekend of not sticking to the rules or a couple of days could, would likely put us back a number of weeks in terms of the the numbers and start the whole kind of cycle again so I think it's great to emphasize those points once again so Tim Thank you very, very much, first of all, for everything that you're doing in a professional capacity. And I think it can never be said too often that what you and everyone else in the NHS and all other key workers, of course, is nothing short of amazing. So thank you all for what you're doing. It really is so important. And thank you for taking an hour as well to talk to me, because I know you're, you're probably keen to, like I say earlier on, put the feet up and, and chill out for a bit. So really, thank you so much for coming on and, and having a chat. No, great. Well, um, it's been a pleasure from my point of view point of view as well James so thank you for um you know sort of I guess having me on your podcast and um, yeah I've been really happy to share you know any insight that I've had so yeah thank you very much for that hope that you enjoyed that conversation that podcast and thanks once again for to Tim for coming on to the show and giving a perspective on what it's like working in intensive care medicine at the moment but also intensive care nutrition and dietetics and just giving us a general idea of of what it's like on the front line like that if you did enjoy the podcast then please do um subscribe rate the podcast on your chosen podcast provider um for more information on nedpro and and what we're doing please 
follow us on social media uh, so you can find us on twitter linkedin and facebook and also visit our website where you can find more information about the general things that we do including other educational offerings as well the next episode of the podcast is a really interesting conversation that i've had with uh, dr ronita barton so dr ronita barton is a an architect by training who's working primarily in india with slum rehabilitation housing we had a conversation about how the physical environment and the related food environment in this time of the COVID pan, uh, COVID-19 pandemic is having an effect on public health. And afterwards, I also had a conversation with Professor Shimon Ray, where we talked a little bit more about food security and the food environment. So I hope that you'll join us again next time for that. And until then, um, thank you very much for listening.